We are starting a new sermon series today for our church, for, for Lighthouse here today. And uh, I've, I enjoyed putting this together some time ago. I'm excited to bring it to us at this season. Uh, we are calling this series Jaws. Jaws. This is a great thing to do on a baptismal day when we're going to get in the water. So if you see a fin going through the water later on, you'll know something's up, right? We're calling it Jaws. And Jaws stands for Jonah, a whale of a story. Jonah, a whale of a story. That's our acronym, okay? So we got clever, didn't we? So anyhow, we're going to enjoy this together for the next couple of weeks. Now, perhaps you've never heard the story of Jonah. Maybe it's new to you. And if so, you're going to have a treat because it's a very, it's an exciting adventure. And I think you're going to learn a lot of things that will be interesting about a time period in ancient Israel. But maybe you have been around because you maybe you went to Sunday school when you were young and you heard the story about the whale or the big fish or whatever. You heard the story about, uh, maybe you sang songs about Jonah. Or maybe you've heard cultural references to it just growing up in America. Or perhaps you watch VeggieTales, perhaps, I don't know. But whatever it is, maybe you know the story. I think you're going to learn and see some brand new things from this crazy tale. And I hope that you'll come around for the entire sermon series and be here for the whole thing as we look to gain some fresh insights over the next few weeks. Each week's going to be a different direction topically. Jonah is very conveniently divided into four chapters that are all unique in, in their direction. Four chapters, let me, let me change that word if I can. Four stanzas. There's four stanzas being played and each one is telling a different, a different melody, a different tune. And so we're going to look at this, these, this uh, ch- book of Jonah each week one stanza through the month of July. And for today, we're going to begin with chapter 1, but every week will be different in its approach. So for example, in the weeks to come, we're going to talk about such topics as what happens when you feel that you've hit rock bottom in life. What happens when you feel like you've hit a rough spot and you don't know how to get past whatever, you know, you just know how to get out of it. And you don't know, and you're frustrated, you're afraid, you're angry, you're scared, you blame yourself, you blame God, you blame others, you just don't even know what to pray When you're at rock bottom, what do you do? We're going to talk about getting past your past. How do you march forward in life when you have something in your past that makes a shadow over you, that makes it difficult to shake? How do you move past that and find your best days are indeed the ones still in front of you? We'll talk about that. We'll talk about this idea that does God just expect me to do the right things or do I actually personally matter to God? We'll discuss that together. And it's going to be a good, a good few weeks. But today we're going to begin with stanza number one. And this is a coincidence, perhaps. But it's going to tie in very well with what we talked about last Sunday, if you were here. Last Sunday's message uh, on July 4th weekend. And this one, are going to have some common application threads. But that's just, just because they do as we launch into uh, the beginning of this series. Now, as we get started, one of the most important things to note about Jonah, if you know anything about him, is that Jonah was not just some rebellious man who was too lazy and too careless to do what God wanted. Rather, Jonah was a significant prophet of God in Israel. 
In fact, if you were to read the period in the ancient Hebrew scriptures, you would see that there was a lot of prophets and they all served different purposes. Some prophets were raised up to kind of just speak truth. Some were raised up to declare warning over the land and, and warning the nation. Others were there to prophesy positive and good things for their future. And Jonah was a very, uh, loved his country, and he was a, one of those prophets who, as far as we can tell, was a positive voice in his nation as a prophet. In fact, I want to show you a verse that will point to that, that perhaps you've never seen before. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, it says, Jeroboam II, that was the king of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, Jeroboam II recovered the territories of Israel between Labohamoth and the Dead Sea, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had promised through Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So a lot there. Jeroboam, this king, is able to reconquer or regain some land that they had previously lost to other kingdoms around them and expand their national borders. And, and it was a positive thing for the nation of Israel. And it was something that God had pre-promised or prophesied through Jonah, this prophet, Jonah, the son of Amittai. I like that name, by the way, Amittai. Someone should name our child Amittai, right? We thought we were going to have a new baby in the room today. Uh, I saw little Bennett for the first time this week. at visited his house. They were going to try to make it if he slept well through the night, so I'm guessing he didn't sleep well through the night. But uh, they went with Bennett instead of Arlen. I'm a little offended by that. But, but there's a good choice, too, Amittai. So something to think and keep in mind if you have any more children. I'm not saying anything, but, you know, if you have any more kids... Um, Dave and Daddy, you know, there's a possible name you can consider for your next child. Okay, all right. Anyhow, the, um, the Jonah prophesied that God was going to restore this land to the kingdom of Israel, and it came true. So Jonah, a prophet used by God, one who could be trusted, a man who loved his nation, and a messenger of hope to his people. So when we read the, what we call the book of Jonah— we're just reading one event out of a man's long life. And most of what we know about his life is this one event in the book of Jonah. Because it was a pretty significant event. And you know how this goes in culture. When we have moments in, in life, uh, there's a lot of people who are famous for one thing. They may have a lot going on, but one thing made them famous. They're known for that one thing. So Jonah has a whole lot more to who he is as a prophet of God. Very strong, loves his nation, good man, does some good stuff. But he's famous for one big event because it was so big. And we're going to study that together for the next few weeks. Let's read it. Let's begin with chapter 1 or stanza 1 today. Jonah 1 verse 1 says this. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. Now, to understand what's happening here, Nineveh is the capital city of the kingdom of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. And Assyria was a force to be reckoned with at that time in world history. This is before the Babylonian Empire emerged, before the Greek Empire, the Romans, the Persians. This is before that. And at this particular time, kind of the really the powerful nations of that, of that space were Egypt and Assyria. And Egypt was kind of fading at this point. And Assyria was the, kind of the, the big 
kids on the block. And they were pretty, they were conquering other nations, and they had some very peculiar things about how they did this. For example, they would go to a nation, and when they would conquer that land, they would deport the people from that land, not everyone, but most of them, to other lands and, and haul them somewhere else to other places that they conquered and move those people to other places that they conquered and shuffle everyone around so they weren't in their home country, but they were forced to live in these other lands that were also conquered and ruled by the Assyrian Empire. Now, does anybody here want to, to guess or offer a reason as to why the Assyrian army might have done that? Why the Assyrian Empire may have taken people out of their land and put them in other cities and other lands and relocated everybody? Anyone want to guess why they might do that? Yes. Better control. Is that what you said? What did you say? Same thing? Yeah. yeah, better control. Because here's the thing. If people are left in their own land, they're like, this is my land. This is my grandfather's land. This is where I come. I feel strong. I'm going to fight for this thing. But once you move them in conquering them, they're displaced. They're constantly reminded that they're off their comfort zone. They're out of control. And they're constantly reminded who's in charge. So it was a control tactic. And they would do this. And they were, and they were very, it was very brutal to people who, who would miss their home country, but that was a, a form of control. Something else that was savage, I'm going to tell you this, and don't get grossed out by this, by the way. It's not my story, it's just history. But um, the Assyrians were known to take people who opposed them and make a, make a, a scene, to make a, a, an example of them, kind of like the Romans did with crucifixion. Um, the, what they would do is they would take public roads and major thoroughfares, and they would take enemies who opposed them, and they would put, put large sticks up there and impale them on large sticks and skin them alive and let them die there, impaled on those sticks. That's how they would, that's how they would treat people, that they, to make a scene to scare the other nations to fall into line. I know it's a pretty barbaric thing, but that's just the times in which people lived. Do you understand? I mean, you know, it's, to our Western modern sensibilities, we're like, what? That's just the world the way it was, man. And especially, not that everyone did that, but it was a pretty savage time, and this nation was particularly savage. So God is telling Jonah to go to the capital city of Assyria and announce his judgment against them because of their sins. To which Jonah's probably thinking, good, that's awesome, judge them, you know? Because Israel understood something that Nineveh and Assyria was already a threat to Israel. Not just because they were a threat to everybody, and they were. They were known to go to places ahead of time, send their generals to taunt the people in the, in, in the land and cause them to be fearful before war even could break out, asking people to surrender before a fight broke out. I mean, people were already a, a, did not like Assyria. But on top of that, there were prophets in Israel like Isaiah and Hosea and Joel and Amos who had already been prophesying that, that um, Assyria would one day actually overtake the northern kingdom of Israel as a part of, as they've gone so far from God and they lost their way and they were weakened as a nation, they would actually be taken captive by the Assyrians according to prophecy. And Jonah was around for those days, so he knew the prophecies. He was a prophet himself. So he does not like Nineveh. Please judge them, God. And, and Jonah has to know something. If I go to Nineveh and warn them of God's judgment, what if they repent? See, that's a problem, isn't it? Because Jonah had watched the prophets in Israel already warning their people, and no one in Israel was repenting. They were just staying on their same stubborn track heading toward destruction. 
And Jonah says, what if I go to Nineveh and they do something that we have not done? What if they listen to God's warning and they turn? And God's a merciful God. He's good. What happens if he changes his mind? See, Jonah would love to go to Nineveh and tell them the bad news. Judgment's coming, neener, neener, neener. And just enjoy it, perhaps. But to go warn them and perhaps help them and maybe even save them? Ah. So Jonah is not interested in this story. By the way, I um, didn't die. I kind of skipped this, and so I, I don't want to skip it. So I haven't put a verse in here. I want you to show you those prophecies did come true eventually. Uh, the nation did fall to the Assyrian Empire. I'll show you 2 Kings 17, verse 5. The, then the king of Assyria invaded the entire land, and for three years he besieged the city of Samaria. Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. It says in verse number 6, Finally, in the ninth year of King Hosea's reign, Samaria fell, and the people of Israel were exiled to Assyria. They were settled in colonies in Hala, along the banks of the Habor River in Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. So it eventually did happen, as Jonah knew and others knew it would. And he didn't want to go warn them of anything about God's judgment. He was willing to say, nah, that's okay, God. So what does Jonah do? Jonah did the only sensible thing. Verse 3, but Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction. Right? To get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. So Jonah's like, uh, God, you said go to go tell, tell Nineveh? Okay, I'm going to Tarshish. He's going the opposite way, right? He bought a ticket and went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Now this is kind of funny to me because we know how ridiculous it really is to think we can run from God or escape the Lord. But we've all done it. Now, don't, 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 don't lie now. We've all thought, maybe, you know, we may not have said the words out loud, but maybe he's not really paying attention to what I'm doing right now or how I'm behaving or whatever's going on, okay? So this whole idea that humans think that maybe God's, you know, looking the other way or something. And when we know someone else who's doing that, we're like, oh, don't be silly. But of all the people in the world, Jonah should have known. This is Jonah's whole calling. He was a prophet. If anyone was in touch with the heart of God all the time, it was Jonah. He had to know you can't run from God, but he's going to try. He's going to be like, hey, God, look, it's a flock of flying turtles, and then go the other way real fast. I mean, he's trying. Like, is this possibly going to work? Well, obviously, God's not going to let Jonah run quite that easily. Jeremiah 1 verse 4, uh, Jonah 1 verse 4 says, The Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Now, it was common in those days for people to get lost at sea. For, I mean, it's, it's common in more recent days for people to experience that. You can't always control the weather out at sea. Right? You can't always control when storms come. But people try to say, I think it looks bad. We're not going to go out today. But the forecasts aren't always accurate. Same is true today on most of our weather apps, right? They're not always accurate still. But especially then, they tried to avoid heading out to sea if it was dangerous. But sometimes a storm came out of nowhere. And in this case, God sent a storm. And the ship is in danger of doing what ships have done so many times, breaking apart. All the lives will be lost. They're doomed. There's no hope. Verse 5 says, Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help. 
and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. So these sailors are not, not really religious, devout religious people. They're out there making a living and working hard and doing their own thing. But they're like, whatever God you believe in, and many, many people in those days had local deities. You know, they believed in a, a good luck charm God or an, an idol they'd make or maybe a regional, the God of this area or maybe gods of the sea or the land or whatever it may be. They, they had their own versions of deity, the sun, I don't know. They're just going to pray to whatever they believed or their parents used to believe or whatever it may be. They're scared. They're going to cry out to God, whatever that looked like to them, and say, help us. They're throwing their cargo overboard. Now, that's pretty serious because even if they survive, that's bad. Throwing cargo overboard means their stuff, means their wealth. They're throwing their wealth away. So that you survive, you're like, yeah, I survived, and I'm broke. I mean, seriously, Right? And not only that, but what if it's not even your stuff? You're transporting it for somebody else. You're going to get to the next port. Uh, Vito wants to know where his, uh, his, his stuff's at. Oh, man, I, I lost it at sea, you know. So nothing good is happening right now when they're throwing things overboard. But they're just trying to survive. Who cares about the stuff? It's that desperate. Where's Jonah all this time? Verse, well, verse 5 tells us, but all this time... Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. How in the world, Jackie, how in the world do you fall asleep at a time like that? How can you sleep through that? Now, maybe you can sleep through storms at your house, but to be on the boat when it's going back and forth, how do you sleep through times like that? I mean, seriously, that'd be pretty hard. Everyone's up there scurrying and yelling and throwing things overboard. He's asleep. Now, maybe he's exhausted. I could picture that the, the dichotomy going on in his spirit of knowing that his calling and, and being passionate for it and knowing he's supposed to go here and, and wrestling it down and deciding to go the other way, the emotional toll, the spiritual toll. Maybe he was just exhausted and he was racked out deep sleep. Or perhaps he took some really good NyQuil. Or perhaps he just didn't care what happened to him anymore. I don't know. But what, for whatever reason, he's a sound asleep. And the captain, verse 6, the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this, he shouted. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. So Jonah's like, oh boy, I think he's starting to figure out what's up. And then you've got to wonder, the next question is, are we going to make it? Am I going to get outed? You know, <laughs> well, sure enough, verse 7, then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused their terrible storm. So now, now some of you be like, I'm not superstitious, right? You're rolling dice, basically, you know. But then Jonah's probably thinking, if God can send a storm after me, he probably makes sure that the lots cast against me, right? So he's about to get outed. There's no, there's no, sure enough, when they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Great. Verse 8, why? Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? In other words, they're asking them a lot of questions. Dude, who are you? What's up? What's your profession? What's happening? Ah. You know, they're freaking out. And they're just, and Jonah's, you know, center stage now. And this is where I want to pause because I love to just think about some of these things that we rush past when we read the story. Jonah's refusal, Jonah's refusal to go to Nineveh because he didn't want them to be helped 
caused him His refusal to go help them wound up hurting other people he never intended to hurt. Right? Jonah never had anything against these staff. I don't even know these guys. But Jonah's refusal to go because he, didn't, he wanted them to be hurt, didn't want them to be helped. So he ran the other way, put other people in harm's way that he never intended to hurt. Hmm. That's interesting. Isn't that how it goes in our life sometimes? That we, in an attempt to do one thing we know we shouldn't do, we accidentally hurt something else we didn't mean to hurt. In an attempt to say something uh, to hurt somebody, the wrong person gets hurt we didn't mean to hurt. In an attempt to not do something because we don't want to care about somebody else that, or something else that we're upset about or don't care about, there's collateral damage elsewhere. It's a reminder to me all the time in my life that I should be wise enough to say, is more at stake than just the thing I do or don't want to do. Because sometimes my decisions trickle into other parts of my life. And Jonah is now put these people in harm's way. Well, it's time to face the music. Verse 9, Jonah answered. He said, I'm a Hebrew. He's going to tell them who he is. I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. That is a significant statement. What he's saying, and they would have known when he said he was a Hebrew because the Hebrew people were known for this. He was saying, I don't just have a local you know, idol or some local God that my God against your God. I worship, I have, we're monotheistic. I believe we, there's a God over it all who made everything, who made the entire world, the land and the sea, everything. And that was, that was a, a, not a common thing. Now today, the, the major religions of the world today are all monotheistic, right? Uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, they actually have very similar roots and backgrounds uh, and shared commonalities in certain ways. But they're all monotheistic. But that was not a thing you saw back then. People were having their little local gods and deities and, and like, which one, you know, pray to your God. And Jonah's like, oh, I'm a Hebrew. Oh, yeah, we worship the Lord. We worship the God of all gods, the King of all kings, Lord of all lords, the one who made everything. God of the mountains, God of the valleys, God of the land, God of the sea, the maker of it all. Yeah, him. This bigger idea of God than you hold, we believe in, and I serve him. That's what he's telling them. Verse 10, the sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them that he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. Now, when I read that, my mind gets weird because I wonder, because it doesn't, it doesn't say, so I'm speculating. You can speculate yourself. It says, for he had already told them that he was running away from the Lord. Does that mean that, is the author just trying to say that he told them that five minutes earlier during the storm? Or when they, was that the first thing he said? Or perhaps did he say that to them when he first got on the boat? Hey, welcome aboard. What's your name, Jonah? What you doing here? I'm running from God. Hey, buddy, I get it. Me too, Knuckles, you know. I don't know what they're thinking. But at some point, they're like, oh, man. Oh, oh, you, you're like a prophet of the God of everything. And uh, you're running from him. Oh, what are you doing to us? Now they're really listening. Now they're really believing that there's something to this that they would have discounted prior to this violent storm that's happening. Verse 11, and since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop the storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again, for I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Jonah's like, guys, 
I'm going to take ownership finally of my decisions. Just toss me into the sea. It's my fault. I know what's up. And what happens next is interesting because I'm going to just be frank and you can judge me if you want. That's fine. I deserve it. If I was in that moment, he's like, guys, the only way forward is to throw me into the sea. I would be like, you heard the guy. I got this arm. You grab that leg. Overboard he goes, you know, because, I mean, I mean, he did this to us. It's his own fault, man. So, hey, guys, come on. I need three more guys. Help me quickly, right? I mean, what can you do? He shouldn't have run from God and put us in the spot. So I guess overboard he goes, right? Now, maybe I wouldn't have done that. But I'm just saying, it'd be tempting. But what happens next is unexpected compassion. And I think we, shan't, we shouldn't rush past this either. Verse uh, number 13. Instead, instead, the sailors rowed even harder. They don't throw them overboard. They rowed even harder to get the ship to the land. They worked harder saying, no, 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 we're not, we're not going to do that. We're not going that route. We get, we just Come on, guys, let's give it another try. Come on, guys, let's, get, let's, let's quit despairing and giving up and casting lots. Let's give it another try before we do something like that. And they're working hard to get that ship to land. But the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they could not make it. So at some point, the writing's on the wall. Verse 14, then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. Oh, Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin, and don't hold us responsible for his death, O Lord. You have sent, oh God, Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. They're praying now. It fascinates me. These men, whom Jonah has put in harm's way by even being there, these men are showing more compassion to Jonah in the moment than he was showing to the people of Nineveh that he refused to go help. They're in trouble? <laughs> Good. I can help them. I'm going this way. These guys are in harm's way because of Jonah, and they're, they're not prophets of God. They don't worship the God of maker of heaven and earth. And you know, they're looking at the big, they're, they're just sailors. But they're showing more compassion to this man of faith, this prophet of God, than he is showing the people that needed his help. They're trying to get to land and save his life, despite the fact that he's the reason they're in the boat. They're trying. They're even praying I mean, Jonah, did Jonah even pray for the people of Nineveh? Did Jonah ever say a prayer, God, I'm not going to Nineveh, but at least bless them? No, Jonah's ran. They're praying. They're doing all the things that Jonah should have been doing. Going to help, listening to God, and praying. They're trying to help Jonah save his life, and they're praying. It's interesting. I wonder if Jonah just felt so convicted in that moment. Just so much like, oh, these guys are doing for me what I refuse to do for others. It just had to be such a sermon to the heart to watch this happen. They're actually trying to keep me safe. Finally, there was no other options. Verse 15, Then the sailors picked up Jonah and threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. And Jonah's like, throw me a lifeline. No, no. The storm stopped at once. This is interesting, verse 16. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power. And they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. That's incredible. God will get his glory even in our disobedience. 
It's amazing. Like Jonah ran, and God used it. See, here's something about you need. God is sovereign. He's sovereign. He might let us, he invites us into his plan, and he gives us that free will to where we can cooperate or we can refuse to cooperate with our freedom of choice. But God is not constrained. God's not limited by that choice. God's like, oh, he's still sovereign. He's still in control. He's able to say, look, I, I got a plan. You're going this way? I will take your disobedience and I will still use it for the greater good. And here's sailors who would have never had a moment like this probably, but because of this encounter with a running disobedient prophet of God, they're all saying, we're making sacrifices, we're going to serve him. We're going to vow to serve him with our lives. That's pretty awesome. So don't get too discouraged. I'm getting ahead of myself. Don't get discouraged if you have a past that you're embarrassed by. God uses us in all of our moments, including our worst ones, for his glory. Sometimes he uses us in our obedience, sometimes in our disobedience, but God can be glorified. And But God wants good things for you. He invites you into them. In the end, he is sovereign and he will be known. Now, we're going to look at one more verse and we're going to wrap up the chapter. Before I do, give me a few minutes to unpack some thoughts on my heart. And then we'll finish. Jonah was not a bad guy. Right? We understand that? Jonah was one of the, he was a good guy. He was one of the very good guys. But God was not content to just leave him as good. See, that's what we do sometimes. We're like, hey, I'm a good person. I mean, I'm better than my neighbors, better than some people in my family, better than my uh, people at my job, better people my, than people I see on the internet. Woohoo, don't mention them. I'm pretty good, you know? So therefore, yeah, I have these bad habits. Yeah, I have these troubles. But, you know, Poe, but he's nerfed, and I'm, I'm a pretty good person, so give me a break, you know? Jonah was a good guy, a very good guy, but God was not content to leave him there. He's like, Jonah, that's not a good enough reason to, to, to not address those things in your life that need to be worked on. There's still something that needs to be done. You're, you're, you're good, but this is a problem. So he's working in his life. He had better things in mind. It just meant that Jonah needed a push in an uncomfortable direction. But, but don't, don't miss this thought. Jonah's disobedience was not because of a lack of faith in God. Right? Sometimes our disobedience is because we have a lack of faith in God. We're like, I should trust God, but then I might not make it, so I'm going to do this thing I should not do because I don't trust God to take care of me. That's what we sometimes do. Jonah's disobedience had nothing to do with a lack of faith in God. It was Jonah's faith in God that led him to rebel against God. Because his faith in God was so sure that he said, if I go to Nineveh and those yahoos repent of their wicked ways, I know God. He will be merciful. He will be kind. He will forgive. He is love. He is good. He is, he is amazing. He is going to do good things for them. And I do not want that. And I have so much faith in God that I'm going to go this way instead of that way. Interesting. I always want to ask us to think about ourselves when we read the stories. Are we willing to push past what is comfortable or acceptable to us to see what God wants to accomplish in this world? Or are we perhaps sometimes afraid that God will be good to people that we don't want to see good come to? It could be a rival person that we don't like. 
when they get in the get theirs one day. Could be a group of people because we like, don't like groups of people. Very good divisive American trait these days. I want to show you something that's a little shocking in a minute here. The, uh, if you've never heard of the Barna Group, the Barna Group does surveys, um, polls and statistics nationally. They're very elaborate and they get a pulse on where things are in, through surveys. The Barna Group did a poll about different groups of Americans and they, some of the groups they interviewed, they have some overlap. You know, they, could, they could be you know, in multiple groups. But they were trying to find out, you know, people identify as different things. So some identify as Christians, but more specifically as maybe evangelical Christians, which are the kind of the loud and proud, um, more political nowadays Christians. Um, even, uh, they, they, some people identify as, you know, they're Muslim by faith or by, you know, nominal association or Mormons or different branch of religion. Some people identify politically different groups. Uh, some people identify through their sexuality, LGBTQ. So they decided to take all these different groups of people, labels they would put on themselves, and do some surveys. And in the survey, they wanted to find out how difficult was it for most Americans to talk to people that were in a different group or construct than they were in? How difficult would it be for them? How much struggle do they have to talk even, to have a conversation with people in that other construct or group than theirs? And they posted the results, and I'll show, show it on the screen, and then it's hard to see, so I'll kind of talk through part of it. Basically, it showed that many Americans struggle to talk to people outside of you know, their space. But what's sad is that in almost every single category, evangelicals, evangelical Christians scored worse than the average American. So for example, when asked how difficult it would be to have a conversation with someone who was a Muslim, 73% of Americans said, oh, it'd be very difficult to have that conversation with them. 73, 73%. 87% of evangelicals said, oh, I can't do that. That's higher when asked about conversing with people who were Mormons in that particular faith trend or whatever, 60% of Americans say if someone was a known Mormon, I'd have a hard time having a conversation with them. 60%. 67% of, of evangelicals said, oh, I can't talk to them. I don't even know. I would not want to talk to them. This is sad. When, when have, asking, what if someone's an atheist, a declared known atheist? 56% of Americans said, I wouldn't know how to talk to them. I would, that would be difficult for me. 85% of evangelicals said, too difficult for them. I can't talk to them. 85%. When asked about talking to people who identified openly and proudly as LGBTQ, 52% of Americans said, I wouldn't know how to con converse with somebody, perhaps, in that situation. 87% of evangelicals said, oh, not me. I can't. And again, there's overlap with these groups. Some Muslims and Christians and you know, even you know, Judaistic people all share a monotheistic worldview of God. Um, Mormons are uh, uh, got some peculiarities with their uh, offshoot of a, a same kind of belief system at the top. You know, a lot of people in the LGBTQ community are people of faith. So there's a lot of overlap here. But the point is, is that whenever you find a construct for people and say, I can't talk to people outside of my little group, evangelicals were worse. And what's really sad is we were worse than the average Americans. Actually, these, all these other groups polled on here did a better job of talking to each other than we who identify as Jesus followers. Now, I don't think that's true for every church or every group of Christians. I don't think it's true for Lighthouse Church necessarily. 
But it's definitely a global, national problem amongst the church, isn't it? That's a shame. And I'm pointing this out because it doesn't matter what the group is. You know, some people it's like, I'm a, I'm a Christian who is a, a Democrat, and I can't talk to those Republicans. I'm a Christian who's a Republican, can't talk to those Democrats. I'm a Christian who, you know, it could be any hot-button issue from today's cultures and conspiracies. I can't talk to people who see it that way. They're crazy, they're a sheep, they're this, they're that. Right? It could be, you know, I'm a, Christian, I'm a Bears fan, I, they cheer for the Packers, I can't talk to them. Maybe not. But anyhow, point being that we find these contrasts and say, and evangelicals were scoring the worst at their ability to have conversations with other groups of people. Folks, listen, and again, I don't know, I'm not, maybe I'm preaching to the choir, maybe we're all on board on this, but let me just say this in case you or I need to hear it. We should not be the worst at this. We should be the best at this. Okay? We are called, we've been given a mandate by our Savior who came and brought the good news. We have a mandate to love everyone the way God loves everyone. We have a mandate to spread our good news message. It's a commission of hope for the world, the hope in God, to connect with people to one another, one another, as the Bible says over and over again. We are mandate to make a difference. We, have, we should be the most loving, hopeful, kind, excited, curious, engaging people in the world. We should be the best by far, not the worst. Something went very wrong Along the way, and I think it's been the last 50 years, it's gotten particularly bad. There's a lot of reasons why I think, I think it can translate to the moral majority and the religious right probably, but that's, that's meddling, I shouldn't meddle. I think that somewhere on the lines, the church lost its way. And it shouldn't have ever lost its way. We forgot what Jesus was like, how he connected with people. And we also got in little ice, holy huddles and isolated boxes Lamenting about the world and praying for revival and complaining and doing nothing to engage culture and love people and have hope, joy, love, curiosity, and interest. That's not what Jesus was about. So that's what the average evangelical is today. The problem isn't Jesus. The problem isn't the Christian faith. The problem is what it looks like today. That's a problem. That's a Jonah problem right there. We're running from things we should run towards. See, if I don't like, you know, certain kinds of people who don't see the world my way or believe my way or politic my way or whatever else, I don't, I don't like, some people just bother me, I don't like them. But here's the thing I want you to understand. That, that um, God doesn't dislike them just because you do. Right? Well, I dislike somebody, so God must. No, God doesn't dislike them just because you do. By the way, you don't dislike them because God does. The reason I dislike them is because God dislikes them. That's not why. That's not why. Listen, you, you think, you think, we think God dislikes them because you dislike them, right? God must dislike them because I dislike them and I'm pretty much in tune with them. All right? But let me just say something that we need to hear that Jonah was learning in this whole story and that we just need to, to really, and I know I beat this drum maybe too much, but until, you know, I'll, and I think our church is on board. Thank you for letting us preach this message and say these things in person, online. Because we got we to, a lot, and many churches are doing the same. We got to start preaching into our culture and into our religious culture to get back to Jesus. 
So let me just say this to all of us. Jonah had to learn it. We have to learn it. And that is this, that God loves people that you don't like. God loves people that I don't like. And God's view of them isn't based upon my opinion of them or how they crossed me or, you know, I know how we can be. Well, she stole my boyfriend. Um, that person says something mean about me in a group. That person took my promotion. That person over there, they just are trying to change my country fundamentally. Or fill in the blanks, whatever you want to be upset about. God loves people you don't like. And we should, we should, not, we should love them too. Everybody. Because God loves me. Aren't I glad that even though there are people that don't like me, that God loves me even though some people don't like me? I'm glad. I'm glad God didn't take a straw poll with all my enemies. What's your thoughts on Arlen? I hate the guy. Ah, he's dumb. God loves me even if people don't like me. And God loves people. God loves you even if someone doesn't like you. And God loves people even if you don't like them. And we need to line up with God once again. Anyhow, let me say this to you. God calls us, this is so big, God calls us to see people through an eternal lens instead of an earthly one. You say, oh, but I got a, you know, in country and viewpoints and elections and policies and this and that and neighbors and jobs and positions and titles and wealth. All of that will fade and we're all going to die one day. And new generations will come fight new battles, sometimes the same battles, and it'll just go on and on and on. But when we leave this life, we enter eternity. Not just us, but so does everybody else. And our relationship with our maker is primary in importance, and that's why we should be coming to worship on Sunday, is to keep that in mind. So as we do, we should see people through an eternal lens rather than an earthly one. Let me close the book. The last verse of this chapter... I'll wrap this up. The last verse of this chapter, by the way, if you are following, if you are a Judaistic person, you're, the, you're part of the religion of Judaism, old school, non-Christian version of Judaism, they're, they, in their scriptural texts, they're almost identical to ours. Our Old Testament is their Hebrew scriptures. But there's one little difference here. This last verse of chapter one is the first verse of their chapter two. Their chapter two, verse one, is our chapter one, verse 17. Same thing. It doesn't matter either way because the verse is a bridge between the two stanzas. Here's the verse, verse 17. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. You're like, wait a minute now, that's a great fish, and I, that seems incredulous to me. That doesn't seem possible, and I don't know about that, and what in the world? I got some real questions about, I understand, believe me. I get you, let's, let's share a Coke Zero together and talk about that, I agree, I get it. I want to address that incredulity, is that a word? That I'll, we'll talk about that at the beginning of next week. Okay, the first few minutes of our next time. But I also want to leave it there in transition between stanza one and stanza two. For today, as we wrap this up, I want to encourage you. Because I know that when I preach this way, I'm trying to challenge, I'm trying to prod us and poke at us to do better. And I know uh, that depending on our temperaments, we handle that differently. Michelle and I and Anthony and a few others are taking some of these temperament tests. One called I Said This, You Heard That, which is phenomenal. And I'm noticing something about different temperaments of people, and we're all in the room different. Some people, when we're confronted by saying, we're doing this wrong, some of us get defensive and say, no, I'm not. Or we even say, 
That's not a problem. That's a virtue of mine. That's not a problem of mine. That's one of my strong, that's a good point of mine, you know. That's some people's personality. And maybe that's you. And I am trying to prod and poke past that, that a little bit to challenge us to think differently. I am. But there are other temperaments among us, and we tend to be like, oh, I'm so bad. He's preaching at me again. I know it. I don't do this well. I feel convicted. What's wrong with me, you know? So I want to say this to, to, to you. Don't miss the message here. God is trying to challenge us, but not because he's mad at you. And if you need to hear anything today, hear this. The truth is, is that God cares about you and about who you care about. God cares about you. You matter to him. You matter to him. And so does the people that you think should do it differently. God cares about you. God cares about the people you, and God cares about who you care about. So today be encouraged that God works in our hearts and lives and he challenges us and he corrects us and he loves us. And then say, God, thank you for caring for me. Help me to care for others the way that you care for me. Help me to care for about others the way that you care about them. If we can do that, I think we could find our way forward. And next week we'll do stanza two of the story of Jonah. Let's pray.